Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57 and extending to verse 79. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. And fear came upon all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him Without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, As we now, having heard this word read in in your presence, and as we as your people now attend to this word, we would ask that you would come through the power of your Holy Spirit, and you would do that which only you can do, and that is make room in our hearts for this word. This word that is meant to be a light to your people to shine into the dark recesses of our own souls, to expose what is there, to remove what may need to be removed there, but even more so to place within our hearts the very promise and the testimony of its fulfillment that's found in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Let us now, Lord, in this moment, read and mark and inwardly digest this word so that it might bear to us the spiritual nutrients necessary to conform us more into the likeness of the Christ child, 
your Savior, your Son, the one in whom we rest and trust, even Jesus Christ the Lord. Bless us in this way, now we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're new with us for the first time this morning, I want to just note the fact that you're entering into this series entitled The Songs of Christmas in the third of the four weeks of Advent. We began three weeks ago now in a titled message called Singing with the Prophets, where we looked at the song of Isaiah from Isaiah 9, who spoke those very familiar words that we speak during this season, that indeed a child will be born and a son will be given, his name will be Emmanuel, and he will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We explored that beautiful song from the prophet Isaiah in the anticipation of what all of the Old Testament saints were looking for, the birth of a Messiah. Last week, earlier in this very chapter, this Luke chapter 1, we listened to the words of Mary herself as she receives the news of her, of her own pregnancy. And in the wonder of the statement given to her by the angel, she begins to now as she's entered Elizabeth's house, two women expecting children, rejoicing, she begins to sing in what is known as the Magnificat. She comes to give majesty to the Lord. She comes to lift up his name on high, for she too is wondering at all of what the Lord has done. This testimony from the prophets of old is now finding its fulfillment. It's now breaking into time and space and history, and God has chosen none other than his lowly servant, Mary. Now this week, we come to an old man, not a young virgin. We come to someone on the other side of the spectrum, uh, not a, a mere Israelite, but a, but a priest, Zechariah. And we come to hear him give what is known traditionally as the song benedictus. The song that simply means blessing or benediction. It's the very first word in his song. That you actually see on the page there in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. This is his benedictus. And there's no small wonder of the fact that Zechariah is even speaking those words of blessing towards the Lord because he had to learn how to speak those words. He had to learn how to speak those words afresh just as we each Sunday gather and have to learn how to speak those words afresh after our faith has faltered. After we have misstepped and disbelieved and doubted the Lord throughout the course of the week, we come back into the presence of the Lord as we've done this morning, granting forgiveness upon the confession of sins and having our hearts begin to be stirred afresh with a blessing of the grace of God. Oh, it's no small wonder that Zechariah is opening up his mouth to declare the praise of the Lord. And truth be told, it's no small wonder that we're doing the same. As we look at this passage this morning, I want to look at it in just really one way with three angles. The one way, the one message I really want you to see is that the promised fulfillment of the coming of the Christ child leads us from silence to song. The promised fulfillment of the coming of the Christ child, which we see on the lips of Zechariah in this passage, leads us from silence to song. 
And what we see in that from silence to song is three different angles in the course of this text. We see it personally with Zechariah. It sort of sits on the top of the text. We see that as a part of the narrative, which we'll look at here in just a minute. But I want you to see that we've also seen this movement from silence to song prophetically. Not just personally with Zechariah, but also prophetically as we look from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And then finally we see this movement from silence to song redemptively in the hearts of each one of us through what it is that Christ has done. So I want to start this morning by looking at it personally, then moving prophetically, and then ultimately landing with this redemptive thing of from silence to song. So personally with Zechariah, this is the one that we see quite, quite easily in, in the course of the text if we know just a little bit of the background and a little bit of the narrative. Now if you just get in the text for a second, this is an old man. And he's there with his, his old wife who has just miraculously given birth. They have come to a moment that they never expected that they would experience as a couple after having held this child in their arms for the last eight days, probably amazed, astonished that those moments, parents, we know the indescribable nature of holding that firstborn child. But for Zachariah, there must have been something even deeper going on because this moment wasn't just merely indescribable. It had become for him earlier in nine months ago when it was announced to him, it was something he, well, he thought was unbelievable. Like literally unbelievable. Like he doubted whether or not it would even be the case. You see, earlier in Luke 1, when the angel actually came to Elizabeth and came to Zechariah and announced that his, his wife would, would be with child and, and this son would be called John, we're, we're told that instead of praise and rejoicing welling up in this, this father's heart, it was disbelief as he looked at the angel and said, are you sure? How can I really know that this is going to happen? I mean, as I look at the, um, as just the biological realities and as I consider from a human standpoint, this seems highly unlikely. How can I be sure that this is going to happen? Remarkably, this man of faith, this priest who has for years spoken the word of truth to God's people, who has walked with God's people in the Old Testament covenant promises, in the moment of the supernatural breaking into his own life, disbelieves, doubts, and questions. And what we find is that because of his doubt, there was consequences. And the consequences were that he would be speechless, literally, for nine months. He wouldn't say a word. His voice would be taken away. And he wouldn't get his voice back until the child was born, until John was present. Zechariah has literally not said a peep up until verse 68 in Luke chapter 1. He has been a man who has watched his wife grow over these nine months. He has been there in the room with Mary who arrived three months earlier. And now we've had two pregnant women chatting it up for the last three months. And he has been nothing but silent. Not a word spoken. How he must have brooded over that a moment with the angel when he doubted and questioned whether or not this was going to happen and then began to see the pregnancy of his wife be something that was unmistakable. How humiliating it must have been. 
in the unfolding of this event that he, a priest, this is a public figure, someone everybody knew. They would have seen him walk down the street. There goes Zechariah. Has he gotten his voice back? This would have been extremely humiliating. Why has he lost his voice? Well, an angel came and, and told him of a miraculous work of the Lord, and he, um, well, um, he doubted, and the Lord took his voice. I've tried to put myself in Zachariah's shoes. It's a little easier maybe for me to put myself in Zachariah's shoes. And I think to myself, it would be as if publicly humiliated. The thing that Nate preaches to us every week, he, when the moment came for him to really believe it, well, he didn't. It's humbling. It, it teaches us something about well, the falteringness of our faith, which we've, we've already in some ways described over the course of this service. We... We in this room, many of us have professed faith in Christ. Some of us have walked with Christ from our earliest of days. We, we know the hymns. We know the scriptures. We, we love the traditions. We, we don't even have to provoke to be able to get up early and come to church on Sunday morning. We look forward to it. We wouldn't know what we would do otherwise if we weren't here. But then during the week when we get pressed, or when a moment of challenge comes our way, when a moment of what seems like um, something that's unlikely happens. Well, where does your faith really go? Does it falter? Do you doubt? Do you disbelieve when you lose the job? When you get the diagnosis? When you look at the circumstances of your life and you're thinking the Lord can't make anything out of this? Do you lose sight of what it is that God has promised in His Word? Over and over... When we look at church history, we look at the course of our own lives, we see that great men and women of old have gotten to these places in their lives and they haven't had what one of, one of my mentors used to call game time faith. They had faith as long as they were sitting in the pews on Sunday morning and they were on the sidelines watching the game take place. But as soon as God called them into the game and put them in a clutch situation where they had to actually operate on that faith, they found themselves going, how can I be sure? How can I be sure? Maybe that's true even a little bit of you this morning, even as we confess sin just a little bit ago. And you think to yourself, man, every Sunday morning when I gather in this space, the Lord is near, he, he meets me, I'm encouraged, I'm strengthened. And then I don't know what happens every week, but it just seems like the wheels keep coming off. And I get put back in the same positions and I find myself not believing Him to remain faithful. How many times have you, have you found yourself there and God come th comes through for you? And you think to yourself, now I will truly believe him. I'm not going to doubt anymore. And then you go to the next trial and then you disbelieve him again. And then again. And then again. We, we see that in something of Zechariah's story. Here, we don't know a lot about Zechariah. We're not given a tremendous amount of history. What we get is, is these moments. Uh, these moments, and one of these moments is one of significant failing. But here's the reality. In the midst of that failing and in the midst of the divine discipline that followed it, the removal of his speech, God was working on a song inside of Zechariah. He was moving Zechariah from silence and the divine discipline of that silence into a day where he would speak the blessings of God. You see, that's one of the glories of this, of this passage is as they take their son 
On the eighth day, which was a beautiful occasion, it was, it was the equivalent even greater than what we would call a baby baptism here at Cornerstone. The family has come. The relatives are here. The neighbors are here. Let's think about the situation with Zechariah and, and uh, Elizabeth. They're old. This is, this is somewhat of a novelty. This, you know, people who didn't even know them wanted to show up and see this baby. And, and also they've heard about the angels who've come and, and the messages surrounding them. No one's missing this circumcision. Everybody's coming to this auspicious occasion. And as they gather, traditionally in the first century, this would have been the moment where the name of the child was unveiled. Where what this child would be called is going to be given. Even the tradition of naming a Christian name at a child's baptism sort of carries over from the tradition of circumcision. That there is a name that's applied to the child at this particular moment. And everyone we can see, as the text notes for him, notes for us, is going to call him Zechariah. Because that, of course, is his father's name. And that's what you did. It was the custom of the day to carry forward the, the father's name that he was going to become a, a junior or, or probably a third or a fourth or, or even more. He, he was going to be uh, in the lineage of Zechariah. And part of that lineage meant having the branding of that very name. As they come, all the relatives around, we see that they're expecting to hear this. Zechariah and Elizabeth says, no, he's going to be called John. Now wait just a minute, the relatives say. There's no one in all of your history by the name of of John. You're, You're acting very 21st century here. This is very modern to come up with some creative new name that's, that's not a part of the history. You, you've got to understand there's a, there's a custom, there's something to, to, to live up to. This is not the way uh, that, we, that we do things. It seems as if there may even be a question here um, re- regarding whether Elizabeth was sort of stepping out on her, on her own uh, against her husband. And that's why they're throwing a flag on this and they're calling it a cultural foul. They, they, go, to, they go to Zechariah and they say, listen... What do you think it should be called? You see, he hasn't really been chiming in on the naming discussion. He's been awfully quiet over the last nine months. So, so we're told here that they make motions as to speak with him, which is interesting. Because uh, up to now, we have only thought of Zachariah as someone who can't speak. But now the text indicates for us, not only can he not speak, but he also can't hear. This is a man who is really existing in silence. A man who can't hear and a man who can't speak. He is both deaf and he is mute. So some form of sign language is given here. And he can't, of course, communicate back. But he's gathered the fact that there is um, disharmony, shall we say, around the unveiling of the name. Not that anything like that has ever happened in history before in families where new parents have mentioned to their mom and dad about the name that they would like to give their child. And, well, mom and dad... Give them that look of like, oh, that's nice. Not exactly the name I wanted to be saying for the next however long I'm alive with regards to your child. It's a little bit of that moment here in the text. And he takes the wax tablet and Zechariah says stronger than even Elizabeth says it. She says, no, his name shall be called. He says, 
His name is John. His name is John. I don't care what you call him. His name is John. Now this is an incredible movement in the text. This is a man who nine months earlier didn't believe the child was going to be born. Who now as the child is born and they're in the presence of the Lord anticipating this moment of circumcision. He takes the statement given to him by the angel who had given to him the specific name. And he says, we will follow the word of the Lord. His name is John. It's a tremendous exercise of faith. It's actually a beautiful picture of the fact that Zechariah in the midst of that silence has come around. He's a man now who went from disbelieving the statement of the angels to now carrying forward the word of the Lord when nobody else would want to agree with him. When everybody else except his wife wanted to call the child Zechariah, he says his name is John. And what we see is this last word, which is a kind of first word of Zechariah, His name is John. Zechariah himself moves from that moment of silence into speaking a wonderful song of praise to the Lord. In the moment of that exercise of faith and trust in what what God had already told him through the angel, his own tongue, Luke tells us, it immediately loosened up. And what did he do? He began blessing the Lord. He began blessing God. Interestingly, God was preparing Zechariah in the darkness of that silence and in the disbelief and in his doubt. He was preparing a song that he would sing through the lips of Zechariah and the song he would sing would be about a gospel sunrise of a new day that was dawning. Now what's remarkable too in this passage is not just merely the personal movement from silence to song we see, but also there is a prophetic movement. A prophetic movement that's taking place in this text where we're moving from a place of silence to a place of song, even the whole people of God that is true of. Now what do I mean? Well, I mean to say that what is actually taking place in Zechariah's life is in some ways what's happening in miniature is what's happening at a macro level with all of the people of Israel. All of God's people in that day. You see, these are a people who had for 400 years waited in silence for the revelation of God. From the closing of Malachi to the opening of the book of Matthew, we actually have 400 years of what the theologians call a 400 years of silence, of a hushness where no revealed word from the Lord had come forward. In the song that Zechariah actually sings, he speaks of the people of God going back to the language of Isaiah as sitting in darkness, a people under the shadow of death. That's indeed what it felt like. For without the word of the Lord, there is a darkness. And without God speaking to us, we cannot live. We we don't live by bread alone, but we live how? By every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Except that God hasn't spoken for 400 years. The very people of Israel have been those who have been sitting in silence. It was the experience of the people of Israel in Isaiah's time. People who were preparing for the great exile as Assyria was coming in. And 
militarily bringing the people of Israel into, into exile, that they were a people who sat in darkness, they were a people under the shadow of death. But as Zechariah speaks, he speaks of a different time but the same reality. A people who still sit in darkness and still sit in the shadow of death. No, it's not Assyria. It's not even Rome. The darkness they sit under is the darkness of the sin that so has encompassed them. And the enemies that Zechariah sings of is of sin and death itself. The last enemy that Jesus has actually come to destroy. We see that no longer is he really referencing here political threats among the people of Israel. He's saying the real threat for God's people is spiritual, the evil one, and the sin that we've even acknowledged this morning that's true of us, and the death that is looming for each and every one of us of which we won't escape, save in the hope that can only come in the gospel. Zechariah is acknowledging the one who has come is preparing the way for the one whom we've always been waiting for. You see, what's remarkable about this is that Zechariah, as he speaks this song of prophecy, he not only is personally coming out of silence into song, he is taking all of God's people out of silence into a song. This is an inbreaking of the very word of God after 400 years of silence. He being filled with the Holy Spirit as the priest of God has now come with a word from the Lord. And the word that he comes is filled with Old Testament reference. Notice verse 76. This prophet of the Most High, this John the Baptist who has come, his sole responsibility is going to be to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. And then notice how he's going to do that, verse 77. He's going to preach a message of repentance For the forgiveness of sins. A communication of the word of God. A preaching of the word of God. This is how this new stage in redemptive history is being inaugurated. That God is opening up his mouth through Zechariah. And he's going to open up his mouth through John the Baptist. And he's ultimately going to lead us to the redemptive one. To the one who is Jesus himself. What's beautiful of looking at this psalm is the piling up of references. As I enjoyed this week just taking it line by line and tracing the the, the footnotes to the Old Testament promises, to the psalms, and, and even to the historical books as he references this Messiah who's come is going to sit on the throne of David. Is this the greater son of David even greater than Solomon? And the one who comes is actually the fulfillment of of Abraham and the promises given in Genesis chapter 15. He is that greater son of Abraham. He is going to lay siege to all of God's people's real enemies. He's going to lead them into the way of peace. All of these are pictures from the Old Testament. Raymond Brown argues that there's, there's no fewer than 33 references to the Old Testament in these few verses within this song. You know what that means? It means that as he said in silence, he wasn't holy in silence. But he was meditating upon the word of the Lord. And as he meditated upon the word of the Lord, and when its fulfillment came in the birth of John the Baptist, he was there to be able to sing praises to the Lord as he opened up his lift to declare what it is that God had done. It's a rich paradox That as Zechariah was led from silence to song, so God through Zechariah comes out of silence to song with his people. And what's remarkable even still is it's not just 
Zechariah personally. It's not just the people prophetically. But this is true of Jesus redemptively. This is true of Jesus redemptively. When John, the apostle that is, speaks of Jesus in the opening chapter of John chapter 1, what does he refer to him as? He refers to him as the Word. The Word has come. The Logos. The Word has, has become flesh. It has been made flesh. In other words, this is not just merely a prophetic word. Spoken of a promise that is to come. It's an embodied word. It's a man who is the very embodiment of all of the Old Testament promises that were ever ever given. This is not just God speaking at a distance through a mediator or a prophet. This is God, Emmanuel, who has come to be with his people. Jesus, the word, has broken into the silence. He has broken into the silence. He has come to declare the salvation that was promised to Abraham, verse 73. He's come to occupy the throne of David, verse 69. He's come to free us from our enemies, verse 71 and 74. He's come to extend mercy, verse 72. He's come to guide us into the way of all peace, verse 79. This is who he is. He's come as the living word of God. And so it's no surprise that as we sing, on the night that he was actually born, that the shepherds are keeping watch over their flocks by night and we sing of it as a silent, holy night. In the stillness of that hour, it would be the sky opening up and the first words that would be declared would be those that would be sung by the angelic host, a song that we'll look at next week together, but would be sung breaking into that silent night. Breaking into the silence that the people had set in for centuries to say all that you've ever hoped for has come. When you begin to think about the very ministry of Jesus, it begins to just... Open up even more along this theme because this Jesus, as he came and as he lived his life, would ultimately break into this silence by actually breaking the great silence that had existed for far too long between human beings and their God. You see, in the Garden of Eden, we were made to, to walk and talk with the Lord in the cool of the day. That's what Adam and Eve enjoyed. But after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are sent out uh, east of Eden, there is something of a division. There is something of a distance. We might put it in the context of this passage. Something of a silence. A mediation that needs to take place. A fullness for this relationship to come back into the nature of what it was designed for. We need someone to be able to bridge Across the silence. Someone to break into the silence to speak the words of God. But even more than that, to break the silence. The great silence. Of being able to speak and commune with our God. And our God to be able to speak and commune with us. And do you know that's exactly what Jesus did? In fact, it's going to that, we've been in Isaiah a number of times over the last several weeks. And appropriately so. He is in some ways the Christmas prophet. 
He speaks so often of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only is he the Christmas prophet, he is also the Calvary prophet. And it's here where maybe in a richer thread than any that we've even spoken of, we begin to see the real mission of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Because it's in those servant songs of Isaiah 53, in the, in the songs that we usually sing not at Christmas but at Good Friday, where we actually see that the very mission of Jesus was a mission to enter into the silence, enter into the very silence of our sin. When Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. When Matthew recounts the the days leading up to the the Lord Jesus' crucifixion, and he has Jesus before Pilate, Pilate representing the allegations and the charges being brought by the chief priests and others. He says, do you not want to speak to all of these charges? Do you not want to say anything? And we're told that Jesus gave no answer. Not even to a single charge. That as Jesus came here breaking the silence... He came here also entering into the depth of the silence that our sin had caused. And he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Even the words that he spoke on the cross, were they not anything more than just an expression of how alone and silent he felt as he was abandoned there? By his own father. When he says my God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? Do you see that was the silence. That was the charge. That was over us. He entered into that silence. For what reason? To break the silence. That he could take us as his people. From silence into song. This would almost seem to be too much. Almost an extrapolation if it weren't for, say, a passage like Acts 8. Where the Ethiopian eunuch who's reading those very words from Isaiah 53 of a lamb being led to the slaughter and having nothing to say. And then he turns to Philip and he says, what must I do to be saved? After having read the words of the prophet, knowing that their fulfillment is now in Christ as Philip unfolds the scriptures. And he's baptized that day. A profession of faith from those very words in Isaiah 53. But you know what it is we read after the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch? We're told that after he trusts in the Jesus who went like a lamb to the slaughter, completely silent, that he, the Ethiopian eunuch, leaves the waters of baptism singing a song of rejoicing. You see, that's what, that's what Christ came to do. He was willing to become silent before the charges of the world. He was willing to enter the great silence that our sin had created. He was there to break the silence so that we would be the ones who could sing. You see, friends, at the end of the day, Christ is going to come back. 
At the great day of Christ's visitation, He is going to return. And you know what the Scriptures tell us? When we stand before Almighty God at that great white throne judgment, there are going to be those who know Christ and there are those who, who will not know Christ. For those who will not know Christ, who will hear the charges, the Scripture is quite clear. They will stand before those charges and they will know that they are guilty and they will utter not a word. They will know the immensity of the most terrible silence imaginable. But for those who are in Christ, who won't be cast into that utter darkness, but who will be welcomed into the new heavens and the new earth, we're told in Revelation chapter 20 that we will sing the new song of redemption. We will lift up our voices and we will declare, Worthy is the Lamb that was led to the slaughter without a word. For he has broke the silence between us and God. And the heavens have opened up. And God is ours and we are God's. And we are forever singing in his glorious presence. Do you see this is why the Bible ends in the book of Revelation with rejoicing and with praise and with song because it's only in the melody of the glorious refrain of the worthiness of the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world where we really begin to step into life as it was always meant to be. Friends, today, you may have found it difficult to choke out some of the songs that we sang. Because maybe there's a gap between you and your communion with God today. Maybe there's trouble on every side, just brewing, and you found it really hard to sing. As we begin to come out of silence by God's grace to acknowledge the pain of whatever it looks like in your life and whatever those sins look like in your life, as we begin to acknowledge them, no matter how grave and terrible they are, no matter how great the shame is, God wants to say to you, as Zechariah did today, the Messiah has come. For the forgiveness of sins. Cast all your cares upon Him. Because He cares for you. Know today that His love holds you close. And He never lets you go. And no matter how bad and terrible your past has been. No matter how hopeless your present looks. If you are in Christ. Nothing can stop His love of bringing you all the way home. Friends, if you hear that, if you hear that, you will come out of silence to song. Indeed, you won't stop singing. Father in heaven, that's what we long for today. To be those who can't stop singing. Because we have beheld the glorious grace of the gospel, we can't stop singing. Lord, take us right now in our own hearts and in our own lives, in our respective places as a corporate body. Bring us out of this still moment, out of this silence. Bring us into the glory of your grace. 
And let us open our lips to declare your praise. And sing the new song of redemption. Like Zechariah from of old. Loosen these tongues. And when you do, let the melody of the gospel flow out of these lips. And let it be manifest to the whole watching world. Until the world is full of the song of your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.